The following episode of the 9pm edict contains strong language, diseases, bleeding to death, and really bad opinions. Wednesday, the 1st of March, 2023. Happy official autumn. Kind of. In the news this week, uh, we've been reminded that superbugs are going to kill millions of us. So I thought, let's talk once more with infectious diseases physician, Dr. Trent Yarwood. And he'll tell us how antibiotics will fail us all. Uh, We'll also hear about the social history of washing your hands. Washing your hands was a marker of being a labouring peasant. Whereas gentlemen, doctors, gentlemen, didn't shovel horse shit or, you know, mine coal, so their hands were clean. Why centralised medical databases aren't as brilliant for emergencies as some people think. By the time they've, number one, worked out what your name is and number two, worked out if you've got a My Health record, you're dead, you're dead. You've bled five litres onto the emergency department floor and there's nothing they can do. And some good news, fortunately. We're getting much, much better at finding viruses. Hello, I'm Still Gerian. This is the 9pm Death by Woke Mind Virus Superbugs with Dr. Trent Yarwood. Dr. Trent Yarwood, thank you for joining me once more. Thank you very much, Still. It's great to be back. Now, superbugs, superbugs. Two things have happened. One is that superbugs was a a thing that I saw in the news the other week, but also uh, the CSIRO, Australia's uh, government-run scientific research agency, uh, has said this. Today we're we're really facing uh, a time when, when you might next need antibiotics, they may not work. So you might get prescribed a different antibiotic, which also may not work, and and maybe nothing works. And this is a reality where bugs have developed resistance to the drugs and medicines designed to kill them, and it puts modern medicine at risk and, and makes infections deadly. Now, we're already at the point where the World Health Organization has declared antimicrobial resistance to be one of the top 10 global public health threats facing humanity. It's currently estimated to cause directly over 1.25 million deaths worldwide and cost billions of dollars. And each year, the problem escalates. That's Dr. Branwen Morgan from the CSIRO. She leads their Minimising Antimicrobial Resistance mission. And uh, they also had the news in that press briefing yesterday that by 2050, 10 million people dead a year from this. Sounds not good. Uh, It's not good. It's absolutely not good. Um, I guess the interesting thing for you and for some of your listeners might, in fact, be that that millions dead by 2050 figure is actually from another report that was published in 2016. So this is not exactly a new problem. Mm. And uh, I think the big problem that we have with drug resistance and I'm sure we'll come to a bit later. I, I hate the term superbugs, but it's the one that's got All the right. best sort of community uh, knowledge of it. So, you know, I'm, I guess I'm sort of stuck with it. But uh, it's not at all a new problem. And despite the fact that people like me have been saying 
gee, this is a huge problem and it's going to be very, very bad for the health system, we really haven't at all managed to cut through with our messaging. So whose fault's that? Uh, this is, this is sim- simplistic answers of what we're after here, Trent. It's got to be someone's uh, fault. Uh, health professionals and scientists because we're shit at talking in language that the public understands. Uh-huh. That is true. And w- with a with a secondary serve of journalists because drug resistance is a complex issue that isn't very well transmitted with a three-word slogan. Mm-hmm. And you see, by the time you try to start explaining the complexities, the journalist's eyes have glazed over and um, uh, they sort of just want what this means in terms of their, their headline story on the news tonight. Yeah, and, and I, I will admit in the press briefing yesterday, one of the journalists did ask, look, what does this actually mean for me in my everyday life? Which is kind of the fair question. How does it relate to me? You talk about antibiotics and whatever, so just use a different antibiotic, right? You know, that one doesn't work, just try another one. It's not my, it's not my problem. Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's been lots of focus groups and community research and talking to people in the public and that's exactly what people think um the it's um there's an element of that you know millions of lives and trillions of dollars by 2050 that the public think is just bullshit so number one mm-hmm. like a trillion dollars is an, is an unimaginably large amount of money so i don't even know what that means mm-hmm. and you know if 50 million deaths, well, that can't possibly be true. Like, why, I've never heard of this issue before, and now all of a sudden they're saying it's going to kill twice the population of Australia. That can't be right. Mm-hmm. And also the doctors – one of the comments in the in the big sort of focus group study was the doctors must be exaggerating this risk because they want research funding. They're going, <laughs> oh, this is the next big thing, and, and you know, therefore my, my research is very, very important. You need to give me lots of money. And, and it's – we've done such a bad job of communicating it that people – don't understand it. They don't understand what a huge problem it is for the health system, not in 2050, but actually right now. And like we, our messaging has just got no cut through. It's a problem that, that I think is going to get harder too because we have had so much resistance to dealing with climate change. We've had so much resistance to dealing with COVID-19, which, as you know, does not exist um, and that's all just to, you know, to control our behaviour and so on. And, and of course, when someone says, hey, if we don't do anything, a million people might die, so we do something and a million people don't die because we did the good thing. But then the message is, oh, you said a million people were going to die and they didn't, so you're a liar. And that, you know, yep. it goes back to even I saw the other day a politician who I won't name again saying that the Y2K bug in the computing field was all a hoax because the world didn't fall apart, brackets, just ignoring the billions and billions of dollars worth of work that was done to make sure it wasn't a problem for the vast majority of people, in brackets. Yeah, absolutely. And and I think both Y2K and – well, not so much Y2K because – we haven't well no no that's not true we we have done a lot of work on drug resistant infection but really mm. all the work that we've done is focused in big hospitals and the the you know yes you see more resistant bugs in hospital because that's where the sick people are and that's where the more sort of complex antibiotic use is but 80% of antibiotic use in human medicine is in, in general practice and 
80% of all antibiotic use in the world is not in people. It's in agriculture or in animals or veterinary medicine. Um, and, you know, you, there was a story yesterday where um, uh, a large Australian fish product producing company from an island state in the south um, had gotten in trouble because they'd been pulling some political Swifties to try and cover up uh, an environmental protection report on how many, like hundreds of tonnes of an antibiotic they'd used in the production of their salmon. Mm. And this came up again in the press briefing that there's whole sectors of agriculture that there is essentially no surveillance of, or if there is, you know, people are just lying about the antibiotics they're using. Yeah. In in global measure, Australia has very low use of antibiotics in animal production. Uh, I think part of that is legit that we have good farming practices, but I think also mm. part of it is that we're not very good at measuring it. And I'm sure what we do think there is is a significant underestimate. Now, people don't realise, I think, what actually happens with infections if you don't have antibiotics at all, because... For us and our parents and perhaps our grandparents, we, we've had it our whole lives. We're, you know, the magic penicillin, etc., cetera, uh, became popular, I guess, around the time of World War II, really, was the where, where it, it came into its own. But before that, you know, you could cut your finger and end up being dead with a blood infection two months later. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. And... Um not directly related, but one of my favourite medical stories is about how um, hand washing, which you'll appreciate given my <laughs> encouragement for you to continue using your tagline. I, I'm, I'm getting sick of it. I mean, wash your hands. No, no, I, you, uh... you, you have to keep it. Or you can change it to Dr. Trent says wash your hands. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'll, I'll, I'll um, think about that. <laughs> uh, so... Uh, Ignatz Semmelweis was an, uh, I, I guess he was the equivalent of like the sort of head junior obstetrician in Vienna. And he, um, everybody in Vienna knew, so there were, there were two places you could go if you're a Viennese woman to have your baby. They mm -hmm. were both in the same, like they were two, basically two separate wards in the, in the same hospital. Um, one of them was run exclusively by midwives and one of them you had your baby delivered by doctors. And all right. the Viennese women knew that you wanted to have a midwife deliver your baby, not a doctor, because if you had a doctor deliver your baby, you much were much more likely to get a thing that we now call purpural sepsis, which is like childbed fever. So it's a serious infection that you get as a result of having children. And so what happened was one of Semmelweis's colleagues died of an illness that looked exactly like purpural sepsis. And obviously, he wasn't a woman and just hadn't had a baby because he was a doctor and doctors were men. Mm -hmm. um, uh, and so, Semmelweis theorised that purpural sepsis wasn't some, you know, thing from the gods or, you know, a bad humour or whatever. He, he theorised that there was some environmental factor that caused this infection. And the doctor who died of this illness had uh, been doing a post-mortem and had nicked his finger with a scalpel, exactly as you just said, and got this life-threatening infection and died. And so Semmelweis's theory was that the reason that the women in the medical clinic were more likely to get purpural sepsis is because what the doctors did is they spent the morning in the anatomy lab learning anatomy by dissecting cadavers. 
And then they went and after lunch, they delivered babies. And so his theory was that there was uh, what he called a cadaverous particle that was transferred from the cadavers via the hands of the doctors to the women when they were delivering, well, you know, to the uh, by the doctors to the women when they were delivering their baby and that these cadaverous particles were the causes of perpetual sepsis. And so this was before Pasteur and before the germ theory of disease. And so this was, you know, against the prevailing medical norms. And so what Semmelweis did is he introduced a policy because he was sort of the, I guess, the equivalent of like the, the chief registrar in that hospital, that all of the doctors had to dip their hands in a bucket of bleach, so chlorinated lime, uh, before they went and delivered babies. And the rate of perpetual sepsis in the medical clinic, because of course the midwife didn't have to do it because his theory was it was from the cadaverous particles, uh, plummeted, lower than the midwife clinic. It was, it was revolutionary. And thus, hand washing was born. Very important. And the other, I guess, thing that relates more directly back to superbugs is that it seems that Semmelweis wasn't very good at communicating his findings. And he went, everybody needs to wash their hands. This is very important. Otherwise, everybody's going to die. And everyone went, oh, no, that's bollocks. You know, it's not... not we, we don't understand this because the germ theory hadn't been invented yet and it didn't line up with what they thought about disease. But also there was this really important social norm that washing your hands was a marker of being a labouring peasant. So if you worked in the coal mines or you shoveled horse shit or, you know, whatever it was people did in the 1500s, uh, you, you, your hands got physically dirty. So you needed to wash them before you ate to, to remove that visible stigmata of being a filthy peasant, literally. Whereas gentlemen, doctors, gentlemen, didn't shovel horse shit or, you know, mine coal, so their hands were clean. And so asking you to wash your hands was saying, still, you need to wash your hands, therefore you're a filthy peasant. And doctors don't like being told they're filthy peasants, even today. Um, so they said, no, fuck off. We're not going to do this because it doesn't make any scientific sense and you're making where, like, the common muckrakers, we're not going to do it. And his way of communicating his disdain was that to say, you're all a bunch of murderers and you are responsible for the deaths of thousands of Viennese women. And as you can imagine, that didn't make him super popular and his um, contract didn't get renewed. And he then started writing like very polemic letters to the medical journals of the day, including The Lancet, which was a thing even then. And um, like famous European medical brains went, oh, this is all nonsense. And um, there's two theories about what happened. One is that he either got depressed and um, as a result of his depression became sort of melancholic and then one of his friends committed him to an asylum. Or the other theory is that he got syphilis and got like syphilis brain rot because, you know, that was also very common back then uh, and went a bit mad and that was sort of what led into this sort of descent into polemicism. Um, and anyway, he went to the the asylum under the grounds where one of his mates allegedly said, hey, you know, this asylum is doing some really good stuff in the in the area of hygiene. You should come and check it out. And so, we went, oh, yeah, okay. And they went to visit the asylum together and then his mate signed the paperwork committing him to the asylum. Semmelweis realised what was trying to happen. He tried to do a runner. The guards beat him up and then almost certainly he died from an infected bruise, which the oh. most common cause then was probably the, the bug that he'd saved thousands of Viennese women from. That's, 
that started off as such a great story, and that's really quite <laughs> depressing there at the end. Yeah. Okay, there's too many thoughts in my head about how how modern medicine really is quite modern, and yet at the same time there's a lot we don't know. Indeed. And on that point, I want to play another grab from the uh, uh, from uh, the press briefing from the, the CSIRO because I asked, during the COVID pandemic, we have learned so much about how to, to battle viruses. So I was curious as to, you know, how much of that knowledge that we've gained uh, will be of value when we're fighting uh, all of these uh, uh, antibiotic-resistant bugs, mostly bacteria, I guess. And uh, they had this to say. So the best thing we've learned is about a new vaccine development and delivery platform. So we now have vaccines that are based on nucleic acids, so RNA or mRNA and DNA. So understanding how those can be uh, formulated, how they can be regulated and and delivered has great potential to be, all that knowledge has great potential to be transferred to uh, drug-resistant bacterial infections. There are a lot of nuances associated with using vaccines for bacteria. Bacteria are much more complicated uh, organisms. There is also a lot more challenges in terms of the development pipeline, in terms of identifying uh, patient populations, because unlike a virus, antimicrobial resistance or drug resistance is a feature of an infection. So you could have many different infectious agents, but they're all carrying this little drug resistant ability. So you really have to target um, specifically which of those bugs and which of those infection sites and which of those patients um, should be, you know, first cap off the rank in terms of um, vaccine technology. In terms of the new technologies that have come through as a result of COVID, and I, I, of course we've seen the mRNA vaccines and, and they've been critically important to our response, but we've also seen lots of new technology and engineering solutions as well. For example, hoods that protect um, you know, the, the uh, staff in ICU units when they're treating patients uh, uh, with, with COVID. Uh, the second voice there was Sue McLemon, who uh, is a fellow of the Australian Academy of Technological Sciences and Engineering and chair and non-executive director of MTP Connect Limited. Not quite sure what that is. You can look it up for yourselves. Uh, and Branwen Morgan at, at the front of that grab. So the other thing they did mention too is that we learned with COVID, uh, didn't mention it there, but that uh, every, everyone needs to work together, the government, the doctors, the hospitals... <laughs> the community health people, the pharmacists, and and we learned how to do that, sort of. Uh, maybe. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, look, the, the report that dropped, well, today when we're recording this and Tuesday, for those of you who are listening in the future, um, uh, sorry, Tuesday the 28th, um, uh, depending on how long it takes to get the editing done. 2023. <laughs> Yes. Um, uh, the, I guess the headline finding is that we need to coordinate our response to drug resistance better. And, uh, you know, it's a, what is it, 80-page glossy document with lots mm. of um, clip art template infographics and little flowcharts and things that say we there's not very good public understanding of drug resistance. We need to coordinate our response better and something, something, something data because data makes everything better except privacy. Um, and <laughs> it, it doesn't say that in the report. That was my editorialising. No. Yeah. Um, 
And, you know, that's not... That's not really very surprising to me. As I said, we've been we've known about drug resistance as a huge problem for decades. Um, you know, people have been trying to get the politicians to take it somewhat seriously for at least, well, you know, in a serious way in the last five years. But the first big Australian report on um, drug resistance as a as a public health threat was actually written when I was a medical student in the 90s so um, you know this is this is not a new problem by any stretch of the imagination um, and I I think I absolutely agree with the headline finding of this report that we need to coordinate what we do better because Australia has a very 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 large number of people doing lots of good work on drug resistance like I I would say in terms of the science we're sort of up there in terms of world-leading countries, maybe not the best in the world, but we're up there pretty close. And in terms of government response, we're probably not quite as far along as the UK, who actually appointed a special envoy for drug resistance about five, eight years ago, I think. Like, she, she was in the job so long that she's actually retired. Um, and uh, the problem is, well, at least partially because of Australia's sort of competitive scientific research funding model is that all these good people are at loggerheads to get an NHMRC grants to do their research, which they, of course, think is the most important thing that you could ever possibly do with drug resistance. And they all do their own little bits and there's a bit of cross-talking, uh, but in terms of coordinating, hey, how about you do this while we do this instead, it just doesn't really happen. And I think part of that is also, a, I guess, a victim of the, the federal model of um, health in Australia. So, you know, health is run by the states. Each state does things slightly differently. Um, you know, people have probably heard talk uh, as it was a Labor Party election promise and because public health people have been talking about the need for a Centre for Disease Control in Australia, like the American one. Um, but one of the big barriers to what those of us of a certain age call the ACDC. Um, Australian Centre for Diseases Control, yeah, ACDC. Yeah. Yeah. The, the puns are at themselves, really. Yeah. Young people, you need to go and look this up. Do any young people <laughs> listen to your pod still? Sorry, I, should, um, I shouldn't be so rude. <laughs> I mean, define young. They're younger than me, but, you know, <laughs> that's, not a, that's not a big ask. One of the problems with the, the CDC in Australia proposal is that none of the states want to lose any authority slash responsibility in brackets and small print funding, close brackets, um, for all the things that they do. So the CDC's coordination role is probably going to involve a lot of advisory stuff and much more duplication of effort rather than saying we're going to take all of this stuff that the states are currently doing and we're going to do it once and do it properly because that's not how health in Australia is set up. I, I I can tell you and I could both whinge about that for some time, but I want to quickly go through some other infections. I, th I think one sentence on each of these is enough because there's so many of them. Uh, Schoolgirl died of bird flu in Cambodia, 11 others under observation. Uh, should we be worried? Uh, new flus happen all the time, probably not that much. Okay, Marburg, bird flu, MVE, which I believe is called Murray Valley Encephalitis. There was a whole thing about that. Again, just keep our eyes on them. 
Um, Marburg's been around since the 70s and has never really broken out of Western Africa, so I wouldn't stress too much. Uh, bird flu, we've already sort of spoken about. You know, we, we're probably going to have a big flu year at some stage in the next few years. Uh, Marivale encephalitis is interesting. It's it's something that we've known I'm about. Encephalitis, encephalitis. I think are both okay. Uh, yes, I think I think one of them is more American, one of them is more UK. But they ah, people tend yeah. to be pretty sloppy with the usage. Your helpful listeners, I'm sure, can who know Greek or Latin can um, write in and tell us. <laughs> Hi Maria, I know you're listening. <laughs> um, uh, so Murray Valley encephalitis has been around for years and in fact has an Australian name as, as you may have noticed because it is indeed our Murray River uh, where it was first described back when um, we used to give viruses toponyms until wealthy snobs in Hendra in Brisbane complained about it because of the horse virus and said it was Toponym damaging means their... a thing named after a place yeah, so um, Ebola, the Ebola River in Zaire, Marburg oh, is, right. is also a place in Western Africa. Murray, Murray Valley, obviously. Hendra, for those of you who live in Melbourne, is the equivalent of Turak. Um, uh, I don't know what the equivalent Sydney suburb is, somewhere on the North Shore, I guess. Uh, Mossman, maybe. Yeah. Uh, um, and, yeah, so when the Hendra is also where the one of the horse – like the racing tracks in Brisbane is, and so it was described in the stables of said – racing track and but it's also where lots of very fancy um, expensive new queenslanders are built and so they all complained and that was p- part of the reason that the who moved away from toponyms and we now get boring virus names like severe acute respiratory syndrome instead of you know wuhan virus <laughs> and just to translate from queensland again a queenslander is a kind of house not a person from queensland yes sorry <laughs> That's all right. I'm conscious that we need to translate. Uh, is monkeypox still a thing uh, in Australia? Not in, Austra- not in Australia at the moment, uh, right. but um, happy Mardi Gras for the weekend. And <laughs> I, 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 I guess we're all watching and waiting um, to see whether there will be additional spread of monkeypox through the sexual networks which are established on Saturday night. Yes, yes, that will be Quite interesting. Uh, my my local GP's office is uh, near Oxford Street in in Sydney, and uh, they said that in the weeks uh, leading up to Mardi Gras, they were doing a roaring trade in in prep and monkeypox vaccine and all yeah. manner of things. We've uh, we've been very aggressively trying to vaccinate as many people as we can who we think might be at risk leading up to Pride. So hopefully, yeah. we will have done enough, and it won't be a major drama. Those community health networks do seem to get the the message out. There were posters yes. up, that sort of Indeed. thing. As, as we've discussed before. Well, that's enough about those. Uh, a quick change of topic. Well, Trent, according to uh, the patron cunt of this podcast, Elon Musk, <laughs> Yale University is the epicentre of the woke mind virus attempting to destroy civilization. And uh, Snopes, the great debunking site, asked, did Elon Musk warn that the woke mind virus is destroying civilization? And the answer is yes. I have linked to all of the times he's said that. And before we come back to uh, discuss this very, very serious illness, here is uh, Elon Musk appearing on the podcast of the Babylon Bee, which attempts to be a far right-wing satirical site, uh, which was banned from Twitter because it spread misinformation and other things. Um, but here is uh, 
Well, you'll hear someone introduce Mr. Musk and then his uh, coherent response. So you're working on some of those problems, but the problem of wokeness specifically, you mentioned that's like a mind virus and it's destructive. Uh, and why, why do you think wokeness is so destructive? I'm interested in your, your opinions too. Um, but, you know, like, I mean, generally, I think we should be aiming for like a, a positive society and, uh, you know, that it should be okay to you know, be humorous, uh, like, you know, like we should, we should, like, like wokeness basically wants to make comedy illegal, <laughs> which is not cool. We've experienced a little bit of that. <laughs> I mean, Ch Chappelle, like what the flower bed, I mean, try to shut down Chappelle. Come on, man. That's crazy. Um, so, um, you know, so do, do we want a humorless society that is, is simply rife with condemnation, uh, and hate, basically. Uh, and no forgiveness, right? Yeah. yeah. At, at its heart, wokeness is divisive, um, exclusionary, um, and hateful. It's, it's, it basically gives mean people a reason, a, 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 it, it gives them a shield to be, to be mean and cruel, mm. armored in false virtue. What do you think? I'd agree with that. Yeah, yeah I mean, we've, we've obviously seen that from the left, you know, just ourselves. You know, the left is almost this religion now where they're so serious and they believe what they believe with such intensity that for us to make fun of them, you know, for them it's like you're making fun of God or salvation, you know. So they're almost the new religious right in our view. Yeah. yeah. He agreed with me. <laughs> I uh, should point out that when they uh, said Chappelle there, uh, no Australians, they don't mean Chappelle Corby, the convicted drug dealer with the boogie board. They do, in fact, mean Dave Chappelle, the, uh, quote, comedian, unquote. Quite um, Look, I, I don't think I can come up with a better response to this than uh, a, a tweet that I saw on Mastodon by someone with the interesting and I guess somewhat factual name of Rhinos Worry Me. Oh, uh, they he, should. It, They're dangerous animals. They are. They're very dangerous animals. Anyway, this this tweet, which I'm sure you will link to, said, "Imagine if being woke really was a virus. If you could just cough on someone, and two days later, and they'd wake up like, I wonder if people who are different from me should have rights after all." And then they ended with a comment: "Masking would be mandated immediately." Hashtag masks. Hashtag woke. Hashtag virus. It, yes, it is. <sighs> Mind viruses. Uh, that is that is a thing. If you if you do just search for woke mind virus anywhere, you will find a a whole range of things that supposedly cause it, that it causes people who have it, and so on. I do. I know a more serious one though. I did see a news report uh, recently that wondered whether Alzheimer's, the the very debilitating, um, I suppose, physical degeneration of the brain. Uh, could be caused by an infection. And this is something that does fascinate me because back in whatever it was, the 70s or 80s, we discovered things like stomach ulcers were in fact caused by an infection. In the animal kingdom, we see things like snails' behaviour changed by an infection and the snails climb up onto stalks of grass so that birds can eat them and the infection gets passed on. So, um, Cervical cancer? Cervical cancer, indeed. Yes, so many things we discover are caused by infections. 
Maybe lots of things are. Maybe all, all of all of medicine will one day be infectious diseases. Hello to all my uh, non-infectious diseases physician colleagues. Listening. I mean that that is a, a bold claim, but no, no, it's, I don't actually believe that. Okay, how about my my pet theory that we will discover that things like major depression may end up, in many cases, being an infection. This is really tricky um, because we're getting much, much better at finding viruses. So, again, those of you who are of a certain age will remember that back in the 70s, 80s, perhaps even the early 90s, I'll have to go and look it up, um, uh, there was a lot of talk about the Human Genome Project where Ah, we we were going to revolutionise human medicine by sequencing all of the genes in the human body. Yeah. Uh, you can now do that in a little machine on a bench top that costs about five grand and um, yeah, and it takes about four hours. And, and we've solved uh, medicine. There you go. <laughs> yeah, that's right. We can oh, all go I'm, home. I'm, I'm sipping a pina colada on the beach as we, you know. Um, uh, and so sequencing, genetic sequencing is a lot easier than it used to be. And now what we can do is you can do uh, essentially this um, genetic f- fishing expedition, basically. You say you take you know, a brain from someone who died of Alzheimer's disease and you run it through this fancy sequencer. And what it does is it looks for little matches of DNA from viruses. And a lot of these genetic sequence databases are on the internet now. So you can, um, you know, two-finger type HTTP colon slash slash www.virusgenome.whatever into your sequencing program and it will automatically just go through and it'll go, oh, we found a match for this virus and this virus and some human stuff, which obviously you'd expect because it's a brain biopsy. Uh, And maybe that means (laughs) that, um, uh, you know, maybe, maybe that means that this virus that we found a bit of this DNA in there is, well... Maybe it's associated with Alzheimer's disease, and you can link to that, you know, that famous XKCD about um, correlation not being causation in the statistics class. Um, so, you know, we can find viral DNA in plaques. Does that mean that the the viral DNA is the cause of the plaques? Maybe, maybe not. Um, well, it, it, finding it there doesn't mean that it's causal. It means that it's associated, perhaps. But um, you know, we don't know enough about the the pathophysiology of Alzheimer's to say whether it, it is related to a to an infection. So it's a little early for a current affair to start off a story with miracle cure. And it, look, yes, absolutely. And I think that's coming back to what I was saying about drug resistance before. That's part of the problem that like I have this theory about sort of research journalism. So you've got someone who's a like a PhD molecular biologist sort of who is doing deep sequencing on Alzheimer's proteins and their paper that they publish is, you know, DNA from the whatever virus found in Alzheimer's plaques. And Mm. then they, their media, their uni media team asked them to write a sexy media release so they can put it out there because, you know, um, unis all work on metrics these days and it's whoever gets the most clicks you know the most alt metrics on their on their papers and so the scientist goes oh i guess i need to make sound this make this sound accessible and cool and then it goes to the uni media team and they sex it up a bit and then they drop 
that to a journalist who in like the mainstream media is probably not a particularly good science journalist because we don't really have very many good science journalists in Australia. Like apologies to those few good ones who are out there because there are a few of them, but most people working in most mainstream media don't have the, I guess the necessary degree of science clout. And then they go, Oh, this all sounds a bit dry and boring. What does it mean? And then they ring the media team and they go, Oh, we'll get we'll get the scientists to do a quote. And you go, oh, well, it means that there's some DNA. And what does that mean? Oh, well, we found the DNA in this bit of the brain. Or what does that mean? Well, we don't really know. And the journalist goes, oh, I can't write that. They go, oh, so does this mean that maybe the virus causes the Alzheimer's? And the scientist usually says something along the lines of, oh, we can't prove that, but it's suggestive. And then that gets editorialised to scientists says virus causes Alzheimer's, which is what makes it into the media. It's like, you know, um, it's, it's like kids playing telegrams or, you know, mm. I think that's what they call, what we, what we used to call Chinese whispers when we were pre-woke. Um, <laughs> yeah. All right. So, I, again, it's interesting, but I shouldn't get too excited. Look, uh, as, you, as you said yourself, um, the, the Australian scientists, another great Austra- Australian science win who discovered that that a significant proportion of stomach ulcers were caused by bacterium also got poo-pooed for their ridiculousness of their findings. And one of them proved his thesis by drinking a, a, an Erlenmeyer flask full of bacteria that he cultured in his lab and gave himself a stomach ulcer and went, ha, see, I told you. Um, and then took antibiotics to get rid of it. Then, and then took some antibiotics to get rid of it. And, and then he, took a Nobel Prize home a few years indeed, later. Indeed. So... It is entirely possible that there is some association and, um, uh, you know, we can't rule out that it's there. We've found it. It means it's likely. And I guess, you know, for all of me poo-pooing health data and how it gets used for this sort of research, we are essentially doing big data on people's health records now. And so you do find associations, but how strong those associations are, whether it actually translates into anything that we can do to prevent people from getting that virus or, you know, treating it directly when, you know, Alzheimer's is a very complicated example because it has a long sort of, um, I guess, pre or minimally symptomatic period where the damage is being done and then all of a sudden you haven't got enough brain reserve left and, you you know, you, you get dementia. So it's a complex example. That and also it's the goes with thing of, well, people who get Alzheimer's might do so because of some environmental thing which also makes them more susceptible to this particular kind of virus. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, might all be that. It's If we map that against where the 5G towers are, we can crack this wide open. You heard it here first, folks. Uh, and on that point, we'll take a brief break to do the housekeeping. As is often the case, we begin the housekeeping with some fact checks on the things we've said so far, uh, because Trent and I, there were relying on our memories quite a bit, and I know mine's getting shoddy. Uh, the first one is that that, that doctor we mentioned, uh, Ignaz Semmelweis, was a lot more recent than I had thought. It wasn't the 1500s or 1600s. He was 
born in 1818 and died in 1865. Gee, a relatively young man. Uh, well, you heard the tragic story. So that was well into what we would call uh, the Victorian era in English-speaking countries. That's amazing that even even that late in history, that's what only 150, not even 150 years ago, uh, the idea that doctors wash their hands was seen as radical. That's quite amazing. Um, Another time shift, Trent mentioned that uh, Britain's uh, first envoy for antimicrobial resistance uh, was appointed, what he said, five or maybe eight years ago. It was not even four years ago. It was in June 2019. Uh, That was Professor Dame Sally Davies. She had previously been uh, the UK's chief medical officer for the whole country. And, of course, she was master of Trinity College of Cambridge because, you know, that's how the UK works. So time shifts. And uh, another time-based fact check, the Human Genome Project. It began in the year 1990 completed in the year 2003, the idea that, yes, we would have a complete map of the human genome, although as I say that, whose? Because everyone's DNA is slightly different, surely. Bet it was a white person, bet it was a white man, you bet. I was probably the doctor who started the project, Venter, I think his name was. Anyway, that's the fact checks for now. Uh, Oh, Chinese whispers, we call that telephone, apparently although that's, I think, what they call it in in the America. It's really hard to say. Anyway, that's the fact check so far. Uh, The next episode of this podcast is going to be really soon. Justin Warren, who is, you know, your geek about digital rights and all of that sort of thing, uh, we're going to be recording this podcast coming Friday when I'm down in Melbourne. Uh, So if you have trigger words or a conversation topic uh, for us for that episode, I'll need them by midday this Friday, the 3rd of March, 2023. Uh, And then after that, uh, I need to tell you that the Public House Forum recording dates have now been set. I'm putting it back a couple of weeks because I've got a wonderful guest for the first one, Mark Humphreys, one of our most popular guests, the satirist. You'll know him from ABC's 7.30 and elsewhere. Mark Humphreys will be joining us. Also, Kathy Wilcox, the cartoonist with the Sydney Morning Herald, or one of the cartoonists with the Sydney Morning Herald. Those two actually met on a public house forum recording of this very podcast on a rainy afternoon in Hurstville back in 2016. And that's kind of why I wanted to do the the reunion. So that will be happening on the 1st of April, Saturday the 1st of April at a pub in... Uh, in the Sydney CBD or near Central Station. Uh, The venue I wanted to use uh, has some um, renovations happening, so that's not going to be available. Uh, So I just have to lock that in. But the date is locked in, Saturday the 1st of April, in the afternoon, somewhere in a convenient part of Sydney for many of you. In Sydney, at least. And Pencil In, the other Public House Forum episode, uh, that'll be Saturday the 29th of April. I'm trying to organise the budget so it's outside of Sydney somewhere at another uh, major city. So we'll we'll deal with that. There will be another guest for the one on the 1st of April. So that's all happening. If you can't make it, it will be live streamed as part of... Uh, 
your generous contributions to the 9pm hardware refresh uh, crowdfunder, uh, I'll, uh, I'll be able to live stream both audio and video. First time I'm going to try live streaming video from a venue like that, so that'll be fun and or a disaster. Saturday the 1st of April. Sure, sort of put that date aside. Stay tuned for how to let me know how many people are coming. Now, this podcast is, of course, made possible by you, the generous listener, all the equipment. I'm using the, the new uh, Rode Procaster microphone for the first time today. Uh, subtle difference, but I can certainly notice it uh, here in my ears. Uh, that's over for now, but if you want to support this podcast, please go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip, the 9pmedic.com slash tip. Throw a few dollars into the tip jar. If you're feeling a little more generous, uh, click through. There's a subscribe button, which will allow you to do things like buy trigger words and conversation topics. You know how it works. You listen. Uh, and in fact, uh, we'll have some trigger words coming up next. But for now... Press pause for a bit. Go to the 9pmedic.com slash tip. Now, that, dear listeners, you know, is the sound of the glass jar of transparency, which is full of folded up pieces of paper, and each piece of paper contains a word sent in by a supporter in the hope that will that it will trigger a conversation. Therefore, they are called trigger words. But Trent, one has been chosen especially for you before we go to the glass jar. And it's Hi, Justin. Friend of the pod, Justin Warren, uh, who, as I said in the housekeeping, is, is on the next episode. So you can get your revenge, Trent. Um, his trigger word is database or, if you prefer, opt out. Now, I will play a brief grab from, uh, from. okay, I feel dirty here. This is from Sky News and it's from Rita Pahani, but it really is actually the is, point. Is, is this the first time you've ever played Rita on the podcast, still, Gary? No, but it's usually to mock her, whereas in this case, here we go. Now, on the health front, there's growing pressure for the government to amend its uh, controversial health information sharing bill, which would bring in a new centralised system for patients' private medical data. Um, Is this a program that people should be able to opt out of? This is a clear breach of medical privacy. Now, we've seen over the past few years that the Victorian government really doesn't care about medical privacy. They're forcing us to show our medical records to go to the pub, for God's sake. Um, (laughs) But now what they're doing is they're having a system where all of these medical records will be centralised without patient consent and there's no way to opt out, unlike the federal system. Now, there's lots of very valid reasons that people might want to opt out of these systems. If they're having, you know, mental health treatment, uh, sexual sexual health treatment... um, Um, uh, drug and alcohol treatment, they may not want other medical providers knowing that they've had these treatments. They may be very concerned about their privacy and they're totally legitimate reasons to um, opt out of these systems. And I must say, I feel even dirtier realising that that bloke talking there was a Victorian Liberal Democrat MP. (laughs) Uh, That's David Limbrick. The Lib Lib Dems are not like the British Lib Dems. In Australia, Liberal Democrat means um, libertarian, right, right, well, yeah, the right libertarian nut jobs, um, uh, 5G towers, freedom and democracy, yeah, all of that stuff. 
would read about it. But that's really the argument, isn't it? That that the new Victorian law, which is looking like it's going to be a law, means yes, we will have all of your health data in a government database, and you are not allowed to opt out. Whereas at least at the federal level, my health record, you can say no, thank you, and indeed many people have. Yeah, absolutely, and so. Look, this is the the forever tension, I guess, against um, easy access to data versus security of data. You know, my my. Well, I'm even going to say security and privacy are two separate things. Yes, yes. Even. Sorry, yeah. that would be like someone telling me that a, a you, um, influenza was a bacteria. So yeah, <laughs> it is. Yeah. <laughs> um. Uh. So. My health record is rubbish because nobody uses it. Nobody uses it because it's rubbish. And so then nobody, like, you know, it's this sort of vicious circle of um, uh, uh, trying to achieve, you know, try, it's like the camel by committee thing. You try to, achieve, you know, make the security wonks a bit, or sorry, the privacy wonks happy by making it easier to opt out, which then means that it's actually less useful in, as a repository of, of information. Now, in a perfect world, you would think that it would be possible to have a an extremely secure repository of health information that could be accessed everywhere by authorised, you know, medical and or allied health professionals, because patients tell us that they hate saying, "I told on my GP this. Why do you, why are you making me tell you the whole story again?" Mm. Like, aside from the fact that there's a a multitude of different reasons why you want to trust, like you, as me as a doctor, I wouldn't read unquestioningly something that someone had uploaded into a central My Health record. I would want to confirm myself, you know, like you're asking me to make my clinical diagnosis based on the assumption that every doctor thinks the same way I do. Like, you know, I know Stills GP. Stills GP is a very good GP. I might be happy, you know, happier. I mean, he's re- all right. <laughs> Did you listen to the pod? No. no. <laughs> probably, probably just as well. Um, uh, you know, but I, I wouldn't just uncre- unquestioningly say, oh, well, Stills doctor said all of these things and therefore they must be 100% correct. Because if I then made a mistake based on someone else's incorrect information, you know, um, the coroner, oh, Dr. Nick, I hate that guy, the coroner, um, uh, would say, well, why did you not take the history yourself, Dr. Yarwood? You say, well, because that's what my health record's for. It's designed to stop me from needing to take the history. So anyway, oh, that's a bit of a diversion. So, but it, uh, but, it, it, but it is a fair thing because one of the selling points of my health record was, well, what if you're travelling and you're involved in an accident and, and people need to know that you're allergic to this or you're on this other medication or what it might be? So that's, that's one selling point. And, and the other is, well, you know, I can't remember everything. I, I, I had one just the other day. In fact, when my GP phoned me back, uh, with, he saw something in my blood tests and then said, have you, uh, have you ever had a vaccination for this? And I went, uh, uh, maybe in the past, you know. Yeah. Um, certainly if it happened, it would have been before we had the National um, Vaccination Database. So more recently, mm-hmm. sure, I can look it up. There it is. Now back, back. In? Maybe all right. Well, in this case, we just do it again. No harm done. I, I'm just getting a few more doses of a vaccine than I might need, but whatever. Good. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. Um, you've said before that that whole mm. 
you're away from home in an accident, you need that. That's not what happens in an accident and emergency ward, anyway, is it? No, absolutely. If you if you are sick enough that you go into an emergency department, like you've had a car accident and you're bleeding to death through a you know a a, a wound in your leg from where you've gone through the windscreen or something, they're not going to stop and say, excuse me, Mr. Uh, Mr. Uh, Still Gary, oh, have you got only got one name? That's weird. How am I going to look up your My Health record? Can you just tell me if you've got a My Health record so I can go and look it up and see what's like, by the time they've, number one, worked out what your name is and number two, worked out if you've got a My Health record, you've de- you're dead. You've bled five litres onto the emergency department floor and there's nothing they can do. If you are that sick that people need to give you urgent care straight away, they just do it. They don't fuck around and read your medical records. That's things that like head-scratching internal medicine specialists like me do when you're, in, when you're not dying acutely. If you're acutely unwell, you need urgent care, they just do it. And then they sort out, like if you have an allergic reaction to the antibiotic that they give you or whatever else, then they deal with that. And they'll soon find out, yeah. Yeah. And, you know, they're not going to not treat you because you probably have never tried to look anything up in your own My Health record. It takes for fucking ever. It is so slow. And it's not very user-friendly. And it's very difficult to – so if you were relying on me being able to have a computer that didn't have – a nurse attached to it that had good enough Wi-Fi in the dungeon of the hospital to be able to connect to the My Health record for me to be able to remember my password because I'm a doctor and doctors are shit at computers uh, to log on to My Health record to work out whether I should put your name in your first name or your surname thing to how to find your My Health record thing to look it up to open it up to go there's some pointless thing that like your vaccination record where's the thing that I'm actually looking for click 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 it's too late you're dead sorry. It's that bad, good heavens. But even even my own GP, with my own health record on his computer, he's been my GP for like quarter of a century now, which is amusing. Um, <laughs> he, you know, he can't remember things that we might have done a decade ago, and yep. he'll he he doesn't have he doesn't look it up. He asks me, "Have we ever done an X?" You know, I, I have think we ever a, done a whatever test? Yeah, what was the result? Because it's quicker just to ask me. I, I think that's a really important thing to remember for everybody. If, you know, I, I think it's great that you've only had one GP in 25 years. I think everybody should try and do that. That's something that's fantastic. And, and it's not something that happens today because there's no bug billing GPs. You know, practices have got closed books. You just go to the local 24-hour medical centre or you pitch up to the emergency department. But if you're lucky enough to have had one GP in 25 years – uh, if that, assuming that that GP works eight hours a day, which is probably conservative, and they see four patients an hour, which is probably conservative, that's a fuck ton of patients that they've seen in the last twenty five years. This medical practice, the GPs do see four patients an hour, but it mm. costs you money, right? Yeah, yeah. Because because those doc walk in doctor shops are seeing eight patients an hour. Mm. So you've had one doctor in the twenty in the last twenty five years. He's had what forty thousand patients. I hate to think because there's going to be yeah. a lot of random walk-ins. And that's why people say to you, oh, oh, Dr. Yawa, do you remember Mr. Bloggs? And you just sort of look at them and just go, who? You know, Mr. Bloggs with the infection. <laughs> with the infection, yeah. And I go, <laughs> no, no, I'm sorry, I don't remember you. I've seen a lot of patients with infection. And even if they're much more specific, you know, if it's, even if it's a really, really obscure infection, Mm-hmm. Then yeah, maybe I might remember them, but you know, no. Getting away from the point, my health record's not that good. Uh, the 
the part of that is by design. The solution in Victoria is to make a single unified medical record that all of the medical data goes into and therefore theoretically it gets around the people not uploading their data or GPs not choosing to upload their summaries or, you know, everything will go into the one place so it'll be easy to find, although it's not in practice that easy to find as I explained in the ED example. Uh, The problem, of course, is that hashtag OzGov can't computer and there's almost certainly going to be a massive data breach and it's going to be a huge catastrophic fuck up. And, uh, you know, as the Lib Dem guy in the grab said, you know, I I do quite a lot of work in HIV as part of my clinical work. And I said to people, look, you know, if you're going to use my health record, you need to be aware that even if you decide not for me to upload a summary letter saying, you know, Mr. Bloggs has HIV, you're, they're going to see that you've been dispensed a medicine that's used to treat HIV. Uh. And all you need to do is ask Dr. Google what Truvada is for, and you'll be able to go, oh, that's an HIV drug. So, <laughs> you know, like the, the system is is privacy destroying by default. And, you know, similarly, uh, you know, the, the other sexual health example is women who have had a termination of pregnancy, which is obviously extremely problematic in America at the moment where they're doing like ridiculous things like period tracking and stuff. If you want to have a medical termination of pregnancy, there's one medicine that they use. And if you have taken that medicine, then by definition, you've had a medical termination of pregnancy. And so if you if you live in the deep south of America and they had this sort of database, you would probably get arrested because you've had that medication and they've just made it illegal to even think about aborting a baby, you know, exaggerating a little bit. Well, but not yeah, very yeah, much. yeah. But there's, there's, there's the example we used uh, back when uh, keeping track of which phone numbers people call, uh, which locations they're at, the thing. Like if, if a young woman receives a phone call, um, well, a young woman goes to a pharmacy and then she goes to see a doctor and then she phones her mum and then together they go to a, um, a a family health clinic, a sexual health centre. Guess guess yep. what's happening, right? Yep, exactly. You know, she's exactly. pregnant um, and they're, they're going to deal with it. Yeah, and, and Vanessa Teague and Ben Rubenstein and uh, Chris Kilnane um, did that research um, where, you know, they – Vanessa Teague basically searched for a woman who had delivered a baby, a woman with her date of birth who had delivered a baby on the date of her date of birth and, like, you know, proved that that even without, you know, even with privacy-preserving data, you can actually pick out individuals out of a de-anonymized data, you know, a de-identified data set. It's pretty, it's, it's, it's pretty easy if you're like me and were born uh, in a relatively small town. There's, there's only so many babies born in a given week. It doesn't matter if they fuzz the data by... A week or more. It's 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 yep. a small hospital. There's only so many babies. Yeah, exactly. And and you match that with the fact that oh, that's right. Um, you broke your arm last year, didn't you? So that's there too. Yep. Um, not that I broke my arm last year, so you can't look me up using that. The rest of it's probably is really easy. Well, thank you, uh, uh, Justin Warren. Um, you have turned me into an ally with with uh, Rita Pahani and uh, David Limbrick, which is really quite depressing. Uh, Let's draw one from the glass jar. On this piece of paper, ah, it says Kaleta Abianak, and she says random word. So through the magic of randomword.com, 
Xenodocunology, the love of hotels. Does anyone really love hotels? I don't mind hotels because, I mean, I've not done Airbnb because the idea of being in someone's space like that is appalling. I go to a hotel. They just look at my credit card. I show them, yes, I match that credit card. I get my room. Then they leave me alone unless I want them to give me attention. And at the end, I go, thank you very much, and I give the key back. I don't need to upload my fucking social network or my Google this or references that or are you a sufficiently five-star, you know, customer. Mm-hmm. So fuck you, off. You're, you're, I rate- you're not black, Stilligarian, so that you're, you know, got a leg up over. Oh, well, yes. That's the whole thing. It's, it's a very straightforward transaction at a hotel. Yeah. Is my credit card good? It is. Thank you. I'll have a room for the night and, and I'm done. Um, there was. Oh, I've gone a bit ranty here. That's all right. The, the but, drama that I had when I I used to travel a bit more for work than than I do now, and and so I've got a, a nine year old and a thirteen year old, and um, like I would go away for work, and you think, oh my goodness, I've gone away, I've left the kids with my wife, well, my then wife, my now ex wife, and um, uh, I'm in a hotel by myself, and it's quiet, and I don't have yeah. like any annoying kid stuff playing, and it's just. It's just amazing, and I can order takeaway that I want, and I can watch stuff uh-huh. that I want to on TV, and not ABC Kids, and like it's just so good. And then the, not so much the bed, but usually the pillow would be really, really terrible in the hotels that I, you know, and you put your head on the pillow and you just lie there awake, and you go, oh, I'm actually, I should be finding this incredibly relaxing and like sleeping for 14 hours before I get up to go to my meeting tomorrow, but it actually kind of sucks. And then the worst thing is I get home and my wife would go, oh, my God, you're home. Here, take the children. And <laughs> um, uh, how was your time away? And I was like, oh, I didn't actually have it. Don't shut up. I don't want to hear this. I've just been looking after the kids by myself for 48 hours. Don't you complain <laughs> about being by yourself in a hotel room at all, ever. She's got a point. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So um, it, was, it was this sort of unsatisfying situation that should have been a lot better than it was. Did you ever look in – the wardrobe to see if the extra pillows in the wardrobe were a different kind of pillow. I that's did. sometimes were, a thing. Yeah, I did, and they were no, no. Uh, not, I mean, not, the other thing is if you if you really can afford your your big five star hotels, and that's one of the things when I was doing some of the cybersecurity industry, paying for overseas trips, it was really annoying. They'd all have this oh economy flights only because that's corporate policy, but then yeah. they put you up in a five star hotel, which you never got to enjoy because <laughs> you were working the whole time. Yeah, but yeah. so the, the the big hotels that have a pillow menu. Mm, yes, yes. When when I um when I used to travel to Brisbane for work once a month, um, I I was actually staying in this. Well, I started off staying in this particularly cheap and scungy Airbnb, and then I got sick of that and and went to the slightly more expensive but still quite cheap motel across the road from the hospital. And uh, their pillows were universally shit, and they did not have a pillow menu. And um, not, I eventually not those few stars, no, no, no. And so I bought myself a pillow which I took on the plane with me, and then I actually left it in my Brisbane office. And people go, "Why have you got? Why is there a pillow under your desk?" I was like, "So when I fly down here for those three nights a month, I can take it over to the to the hotel and have a comfortable night's sleep." 
a few years ago, uh, I I was spending s- sort of more than thirty nights a year in hotels. One year, it, it, it went up to nearly sixty nights of the year. I was I was in hotels for various reasons, and uh, I got to know the industry quite well. So I should do my my tips for uh, manipulating hotels. I think one of the most important ones is keep hammering the same loyalty scheme the same group of hotels because the number of nights clock up uh it it will eventually work in your favor oh actually i I do have a good hotel story that sort of i guess riffs nicely off the um off the mardi gras theme from the weekend so um when i did my so when you do your specialists exam for the sort of specialist that I am. There's two parts. There's a written exam. Once you pass the written exam, you do a, like a clinical exam where you go and spend a whole day like examining patients and taking history. It's like a it, when you talk to a physician about the exam, everybody knows what you mean. And so I actually did my exam in, at St. Vincent's in Sydney. And um, uh, the exam's a really, really, really big day. You Like you fly down the night before and try to get, you know, lying in bed awake, staring at the ceiling because you're stressed out of your mind about how terrible tomorrow is going to be. And there was another guy from my hospital who was also doing his exam at St. Vincent's. And so we met at a little cafe just down the road for St. Vincent's. We both sort of sat there staring at our bowls of breakfast, you know, just going, oh, my God. <laughs> it was like it was like the sort of the pre-funeral sort of wake kind of thing. And I thought, no, I'm not going to, fl- I'm not going to do the exam, finish at 5 o'clock, go straight to Sydney Airport, which is terrible, and fly straight home and get home at like, you know, 10.30 or whatever it was and, and just have this incredibly long, incredibly shit day. I'm going to stay the night after my exam in this hotel and I picked a place on Oxford Street, which, you know, St. Vincent's is at the end of and it looked the website looked really, really, really good and it was, no kidding, just like the worst place that I've ever stayed in. The room was so small. <laughs> the room was so small you couldn't open the door without it banging on the bed and, um, you know, my sort of post-exam, oh, my God, I've – fuck this up and I'm going to have to, you know, spend another 12 months doing doing all of, all of this stuff again. Like the, the exam really, really takes it out of out of sort of medical trainees. And uh, I was sitting in this hotel room that I – with a Thai takeaway that I'd gotten from this little hole in the wall that didn't have like a restaurant so I couldn't actually sit down and eat it somewhere other than the, um, than the hotel room with a uh, – half a bottle of wine that I was having out of a plastic cup that the guy in the bottle I gave me out of sympathy because he could see that I looked like shit. And I was just sitting there thinking, wow, this, this, this just tastes like failure. <laughs> I have to ask, was this a little hotel that was indeed directly on top of the bottle shop? Yes, it was. <laughs> on the, I, I, I know. Yeah. We won't go into why I was staying in hotel rooms on Oxford Street itself. Best not to have that. Thank you, Kaleda Havianak, uh, for for that journey uh, down hotel land. Health experts are urging high-risk Australians who are eligible for another COVID booster shot to get a fifth dose. The latest advice suggests people who haven't tested positive or had a COVID-19 vaccine in the last six months should get another dose. Data shows millions of people are yet to get their third and fourth shots, including some in high-risk groups. So it's time for a COVID booster. Uh, As of now, uh, in fact, you can get your fifth 
COVID vaccine for, for free here in Australia. Um, and there is another bit of good news that a new bivalent COVID-19 booster comes out, uh, well, next month, probably this month as you do this, 6th of March, they reckon that'll be uh, in, in the drug shops. What should we be doing, Trent? Going out and getting number five if we can? Look, I, I think they nailed it in that grab. The most important thing that we can do at a population level is for the people who have only had two doses to have their third and for to a lesser extent for people who have only had three doses to have their fourth. If you are in a high-risk group, then absolutely a fifth is a good idea and the, the benefit of this new bivalent COVID booster is that it's a little bit better against the the newer strains which the so the the older vaccines are not quite as active against the new strains um i would sort of qualify that by saying that the best covid vaccine is one in your arm so like two years ago i said don't not have az because you're waiting for pfizer don't not have whatever vaccine you can get today to wait for the bivalent vaccine and if you haven't had covid or a COVID booster in the last six months, then you should definitely get another one. But it's much, much more important for the people who are only two or three vaxxed to, to have that than, than people who are four vaxxed. It, it still continues to surprise me that people started the process then and, and oh, yeah, whatever, it's enough. But I suppose it's a thing you've got to do, right? You've got to make an appointment and, well, there are places you can walk in, but by and large, you've got to make an appointment, you've got to do things, and you might be a bit crooked the next day. Um, yeah, it's too hard. Go and, go and get it. Go and get it, people. I mean, it's Australia. You can, you can get free drugs. Um, <laughs> no, that's not right, is it? When do you think, as a final question, Trent, when do you think we'll stop saying the number of those you've had and just say get it every year or get it every six months? Just like we do with the flu vaccine, although people don't do that either. Soon? Soon? Yeah, look, before before next year, I think. Well, COVID's going to be with us for a while, but uh, Dr Trent Yarwood has to go off and do other things now, and so do I. So <laughs> thanks for all that, Trent. Um, uh, I've tried, We'll see if we can develop a, a vaccine for the woke mind virus in, in the meantime. Very good. Well, if you if you don't want to get the um get the woke mind virus, make sure you wash your hands and and stay home, stay stay home stay home if you're feeling woke, so you don't don't spread spread your woke to other people. Or Beautiful work. Alter, Thanks. That that this might be the one and only example of me saying you know don't stay home if you're sick. You know, because go go and be woke in public in in crowded rooms with poor ventilation. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's all the edict for now, uh, obviously. Uh, everything is at the 9pmedict.com. Remember to go to that slash tip uh, to throw money in, like, subscribe, all that stuff. The next episode is just days away with Justin Warren. So get your input in. Until then, I'm Stilgarian. Dr. Trent says wash your hands. The 9pm Edict is a Skank Media production. Sorry.